Go ahead and grab, grab your seat. And I'll let you guys know before, uh, before we get too deep into this, we're going to start this morning like we have been starting uh, all of our sermons throughout the sermon series, right? We're going to have someone come up and read the passage, and then I'm going to ask you, what in this passage are you curious about? And at this point, we've been doing this uh, for a lot of weeks, and I'm curious to hear somebody else say, why are we doing it? Or what about it? Is there anything about it that has been helpful for you, for us starting with, with questions? It, yes, it helps you pay attention. Yes, that is a part of why we do it. Yes. Yes. Right, going through this exercise of asking questions at the beginning of reading the scriptures reminds us that we're not alone in our questions. Other people have questions too. Yes. It's a huge part of, of what this is about is growing our curiosity muscles. Right? That it's easy to come here and feel like we're just we're watching a show happen. But asking the questions reminds us, no, 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 this is not a show. And it actually teaches us to, to become more and more curious about the scriptures. Yeah. Brings the questions to the front of your brain as you're engaging with what's happening this morning. Yes. Okay, guys, thank you. I'm glad that I'm doing this all these weeks uh, is... is is, is helping us. I'm going to go ahead and invite Shannon to come up. Shannon is going to read for us this morning, and after that, I'm going to ask you, what questions do you have? So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark 10. We're going to be in Mark 10, verses 46 through 52. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look it up on your phone, or it will also be up here on the screen for you to follow along. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on, his, on the way. Pray with me. God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful uh, even for the story of this man, uh, Bartimaeus. Lord, ask that you would be speaking to us this morning, that you'd be stirring up our hearts, Lord, and our desire uh, for you through this passage. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what questions do you have about this passage now that you've heard it read? I know it's not a demon possession story, so the questions are maybe a little bit harder to come by like the last two weeks have been, but what questions do you have about this passage? How had Bartimaeus heard about Jesus? And it seems like he knew something about him enough to call out for him. What had he heard? 
Yeah, why did he scream out? Why did Jesus tell him his faith made him well? Yeah, how long did Bartimaeus follow Jesus? Why was Jesus in Jericho in the first place? So as we move into this passage, we're going we're gonna to really focus kind of in two main areas this morning. We're going to talk first about desire. What does this passage have to teach us about desire? And then we're going to talk about discipleship. What does this passage teach us about discipleship? And how do those two things, desire and discipleship, come together? How do they, uh, how do they fit together based on what we see in this passage? Okay, so uh, for us to understand what's happening in this story, it's helpful for us to zoom out a little bit and give some context to what was happening just, just before this story. So right before Jesus goes into Jericho, well, really, this whole chapter, Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. So he's on this journey of going toward Jerusalem for the last time, for his crucifixion and for the resurrection. So he's very purposefully moving toward Jerusalem. And along the way, he's teaching the disciples. He's reminding them about what it means to follow him and reminding them that it's not gonna be like what they think it's gonna be like. He's reminding them that the kingdom that he's coming to bring is not the kingdom that they expect. It's a kingdom that is gonna require him to die. So as they're along this, as they're along this road going to Jerusalem, he has this interaction with two of the disciples named James and John. J and J is how they are appear in my notes. So uh, James and John come to Jesus and they ask him, Jesus, oh, will you do for us whatever we ask you to do? Classic, right? Uh, <laughs> so how many times has, as a kid did you, right, did you ask that question? Uh, they're trying to kind of like corner Jesus into getting what they want. Will you do for us whatever we ask of you? And they were probably teenagers, so that makes sense. Uh, and Jesus says to them, he asked them a question. He asks, what do you want me to do for you? Which is not what I expect from Jesus, that he, he honors their desire for something. Will you, do whatever we, will, will, will you do whatever we ask you to do for us? What do you want me to do for you? And that, that is repeated in the interaction with Bartimaeus the exact same question, right? He, he cries out for Jesus. Jesus has Bartimaeus brought to him, and then he asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Just bring me to think about that for a second. How would you answer that question? What do you want Jesus to do for you? And if you're like me, that question can be a really challenging question to answer. I was reading through Psalm 21 recently, and Psalm 21 too says that uh, God gives the king the, the desires of his heart. And I read it and I thought, God, I don't even know what I, I don't even know what my desires would be. How would I even know if you gave me what I desire? Because I don't even know what they are right now. That I'm living my life. So often we're living our lives so fast. We're chasing so many things 
that we, we forget to stop and remember what it is that we're even chasing after. What do you desire? What do you want Jesus to do for you? What Bartimaeus wanted was to see. Lord, I want to see. Rabbi, I want to see. You know what James and John wanted? They said, but Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? Okay. A little bit different than Bartimaeus, right? What they were saying is, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, when you, when you set this whole thing up, we want to be, be like your dudes, your right hand and your left hand. We want to be right in there with you. We want the honor and the glory and the power that comes from being associated with you. So which one of those requests do you think is better? Right? How many of you think that uh, James and John's request to sit at Jesus' right and left hand was the better request? You can raise your hands for this. How many of you think that was the better request? Okay, we've got one for James and John. Okay. How many of you think that Bartimaeus asked the better question or made the better request? Okay, we've got a lot of people sleeping this morning, right? Or maybe you know that this is a sermon and so you're expecting that the right answer is, is somewhere not those two things, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right, okay. Uh, the third, I'll take the third option. Yes, but what I want to point out, I just want to, I want to, what I want to point out to us is that whether or not you raised your hand, okay, we all have this instinct that judges that those desires. That says, well, one of those is really a better desire than the other one. And in the same way that we take our judgment and throw it on uh, the desires of Bartimaeus or James and John, we do that to our own desires all the time, don't we? That we judge them. That we're always judging ourselves for what we want. We're sorting them into hierarchies and, and categories of what's a good thing to want, what's a bad thing to want. And what I want us to stop and appreciate is that in both of these situations, what Jesus honors is that there is desire in, in all three of these people. He does not condemn James and John for asking uh, to receive honor and glory and power. He doesn't condemn them for that. He teaches them. It causes an argument with the other disciples because they're all upset. They're like, well, why didn't we ask for this first, right? Now they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus says, let me teach you about what true greatness really is. But what he does not rebuke is their desire to be a part of something great. And friends, that is true for our desire. The desires that we so often uh, judge in ourselves is that, and there are all kinds of ways that our desires go haywire and get off the rails and, and become disfigured and deformed. Absolutely. But what's true is that under all of those desires is a desire for something good. There's this guy, uh, Kurt Thompson, wrote a book called The Soul of Desire. I want to read you uh, part of what he says in here. He says, if you, if you were asked, what do you want? And you could, for a moment, put aside the predictable anxiety that comes with it. I'm confident that at some point in your reflection, you would move beyond the banal and become aware that what calls to you from the depths of your soul what you most achingly long for is that which is beautiful, good, true, and joyful. 
I'm confident that at some point in your reflection, you would move beyond the banal and become aware that what calls to you from the depths of your soul, what you most achingly long for, is that which is beautiful, good, true, and joyful. Because it's not difficult to identify beauty, goodness, and truth found in objects or experiences outside of ourselves, but we ultimately long to discover and to become these things in the context of embodied relationships. We ultimately long to discover and become these things in the context of embodied relationships. That was true for Bartimaeus. That when he said, Lord, I want to see, he was saying, Lord, I want wholeness in my life. I want what you created me for, to appreciate this world and all of its beauty. I want that. I desire that. And James and John were saying, Lord, we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We desire to be attached to the transcendent. Lord, we desire not only to be a part of something glorious, but we desire to be made glorious. And you know Scripture honors that desire? Paul tells us we are all being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That that's Jesus' delight and desire for us, is that we would be transformed more and more into the glorious beings he's created us to be. Friends, that is true for your desires. That when we're, when we're snorkeling in the ocean of our desire, uh, it's easy to judge them. But if we were to strap on the scuba gear and go way deep, do a deep dive into those desires, what we would find is that for all of us, at the very bottom, that all of our desires are driven by our desires for what's true, for what's beautiful, for what's good, our desire for joy. It's what makes, I was listening to this song on the way in to prepare for this morning. The U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've kissed honey lips, felt the healing in her fingertips. It burned like fire, this burning desire. I've, sp- I've spoke with the tongues of angels. I've held the hand of a devil. It was warm in the night, I was cold as stone, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That the desires that are in us, they are so deep. Even the scriptures would tell us so eternal. That God has written eternity on your heart. Which means you have, de- you have desires that can never be totally ful- fulfilled. There's always going to be more of them. And that what that points us to is that the truth and the beauty and the goodness that we're, and the joy that we're looking for, that we were created for, is beyond what we can touch and feel and experience. It's beyond any object that's been created in this world that ultimately those desires point us to the one who is himself eternal. That, those, that the desire to experience beauty is the desire to be connected to the one who is himself the definition of what is beautiful to be connected to that and then to have him find us beautiful. That that's what we desire. But ultimately, under all of those longings, under all of the desires, 
when we strap on our scuba gear, when we get to the bottom of the Mariana Trench of our desire, what we're gonna find is that our desire is ultimately for God. And what that tells us is that our desires are a good thing. That what's so often true about religious experiences, uh, a religious faith, is that is what, what they do is that they tamp down desire in us. They say, hey, be careful. Desire is the enemy. So just turn the desire off, right? If you can just turn the desire off, that is what's really gonna make you holy. That's not true. What the scripture is telling us is that the desires of your heart are a good thing. But ultimately, where they come from, they point you, they're a compass that point you back to the fact that you were created to be in relationship with the God who is true and beautiful and good. So faith isn't about us tamping down our desires or turning them off. It's about being attuned to what those desires are really for. But it also has an answer uh, for our secular world who would tell us that whatever you desire in the moment, that you should chase that and get that because that's gonna be the thing that makes you the most happy. No, what the scripture would tell us is, no, that your, your desire, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not too strong. The problem is your desire is too weak. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, here we all are. We're fooling around with, with drink and, and with sex when really we were built for something that was so much greater even than those things. So what do you want Jesus to do for you? Here's where I think Bartimaeus uh, is distinguished from James and John. I think this is why Mark uh, includes Bartimaeus' story in the gospel, in, the, in, in this critical place that he does, right before the triumphal entry, right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem for his crucifixion. He even, one of the ways that Mark highlights the importance of the story is he gives us Bartimaeus' name. Nowhere else in Mark's gospel do we get the name of someone who Jesus healed, but we get it here. that Mark is using a highlighter, and he's saying, hey, pay attention here. Pay attention to what Bartimaeus is asking for. Because before Bartimaeus asks, before he says, Lord, I want to see, what he cries out is, have, have what? Have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Not only is this the only time where Jesus, or where Mark tells us the name of a person Jesus has healed, this is also the only time in Mark's gospel where the phrase son of God, or excuse me, son of David is used. And again, what Mark is doing is he's taking a highlighter and he's saying, pay attention to this. And Bartimaeus cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. When he cries that out, what, he's, what, what it tells us that he is clued into is the character of who Jesus is. Because this term, son of David, was a loaded term. We hinted at it even in our call to worship this morning that when God says, come to me, I'll give you, all, I have so much abundant love for you and the steadfast love I'm gonna show you, the abundant love I'm gonna show you is just like the love that I showed for David. That what David promised this Israelite king hundreds of years before Jesus is that he was gonna give him a, a son who was gonna sit on his throne and who would, who would reign eternally. That's a big promise. And what David started to connect, and we see this in Psalm 
uh, 110 is that the son that he's been promised is a son that was greater than him, not greater in earthly glory, but was qualitatively different than him. And so what you start to see in the people of Israel is this growing messianic expectation, this hope for a king who's coming who's going to be greater. And what Bartimaeus says, what he, it's, it's the, the beautiful irony of this passage, what he sees so clearly that nobody else can see is that Jesus is that son of David. But he, he, that he is the son of David, not who has come to bring a political kingdom, but has come to bring a spiritual kingdom. Because what he cries out to that king is, have mercy on me. You guys know the difference between mercy and grace? I will tell you, I really struggle with it, okay? I had to look it up this week to remind myself what the difference is. Mercy is crying out to God, God, do not give me what I deserve. And grace is calling out to God, God, give me what I don't deserve. Do you hear the difference there? Mercy, don't give me what I do deserve. Grace is, please give me what I don't deserve. And what Bartimaeus cries out for is mercy. What he's recognizing is this king that's coming is a king, this king, this, this king over a spiritual kingdom, and that when the king comes, the king's prerogative is to bring justice into the world. And that we say to that, yes, God, please, our world is a world that is in desperate need of justice. But what Bartimaeus recognizes is that when we cry out for justice, uh, we're crying out for condemnation on ourselves. Because what's true about our desires is that so often our desire has been turned away from the one it was created for and turned toward objects in and of themselves. That our hearts have rebelled against the one that that they were created to be in relationship with and have sought their fulfillment of their desire in so many other things. But that's twisted us, that's distorted us. It's called sin. And that when our king comes and he brings justice, that that justice would be directed against us. And so Bartimaeus cries out for mercy. He says, Jesus, do not give me what I deserve. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the essential act of mercy was to pardon And pardon, in its very essence, involves the recognition of guilt and ill desert in the recipient. If crime is only a disease that needs a cure, not sin which deserves punishment, it cannot be pardoned. If crime is only a disease which needs cure, not sin which deserves punishment, it cannot be pardoned. How can you pardon a man for having a boil or a club foot? Mercy, detached from justice, grows unmerciful. That's the important paradox. As there are plants which will only flourish in mountain soil, so it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. Transplanted into the marshlands of mere humanitarianism, it becomes a man-eating weed. All the more dangerous because it's still called by the name as the mountain variety. And Bartimaeus understands this. That the king that's coming, the king that he's crying out to is a king who's come to bring justice and he recognizes, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve uh, the sight that I, that I want. What I deserve is, is justice. And so what he's gonna cry out for is mercy. God, Jesus, give me what I don't deserve. 
And the good news is that Jesus honors that request. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. They told him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. In the middle of this giant parade that Jesus is part of, it's full of people, Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. That all the people who were trying to quiet this man down, Jesus looks at them and he says, don't quiet him down, you bring him to me. He honors the cry for mercy. Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he got up, he sprang up, and he came to Jesus. That when we encounter the mercy of Jesus, that all that we can do is get up and run to him and say, yes, Jesus. And then Jesus meets him with grace. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Would you give to me what I don't deserve? Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. What is most true about the character of our Jesus is that he delights in showing mercy. He loves to do it. And so when Bartimaeus cries out, have mercy on me, Jesus says, yes, that is in fact the very reason that I have come is to show you mercy. I delight, I desire to do that. Friends, do you know that is true for you? That in your life, what your Jesus desires and delights to show to you is mercy. That the very places that you want to push away from him when you sin and you think, I've, I've told myself I would never do that again and here I am again and you're ashamed and you want to withdraw and cover your face and hide. Jesus says, no, that's exactly the place I have come to be with you, to have mercy on you in that place. He delights in it. that our first and our deepest desire is to be brought back into connection with the God who is true and good and beautiful. And so we cry out for mercy and he honors that and he says yes. And then he says, now let me pour my grace on you. And we work that out, guys, in the process of discipleship. Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Go your way, your faith has made you well. He says to Bartimaeus, Jesus says to Bartimaeus, go wherever you want. You've been healed. Go. Go your way. And immediately he recovered his sight and did what? He followed him. That Bartimaeus says to Jesus, uh, I can go anywhere I want. I want to go with you. Why? It makes me think of this uh, scientific phenomenon called imprinting. So there are these, it happens with ducks mostly, okay? Canada geese especially. <laughs> there are kind of ducks that as soon as they're born, they leave the nest almost, as soon as they hatch, you know, they leave the nest almost immediately. And so there's this biological mechanism that God built into them. And what happens is that as soon as they come out of the egg, the first thing they see is uh, 
they fixate on it. They become attached to it. And they go wherever it goes. So there's this guy, he's kind of famous for these uh, experiments with these ducks. I've got to find his name here in my notes. Conrad Lorenz. Okay, so whenever Conrad Lorenz is like pictured in scientific books or in these experiments, it's always with ducks following him because he would be there. He was doing all these experiments on these ducks or with these ducks, and when the ducks would come out, he'd be the first person they would see or sometimes the first thing they would see is his boots. And so these ducks would follow the boots wherever they would go. And for these ducks, it happens kind of um, subconsciously. Okay, but for Bartimaeus, Basically, what I'm, trying to, what, what I'm trying to say is Bartimaeus imprints on Jesus, okay? <laughs> Think about this. This man has never seen before in his entire life, and when he opens his eyes, what's the first thing that he sees? Jesus. I just, that he opens his eyes, and he is looking into the eyes of Jesus. It's the first thing in his entire life that he sees. And what does he see in Jesus' eyes? He sees mercy. He sees grace. He sees, he sees compassion. What he sees in Jesus' eyes is that he is desired. That before he had the eyes to see it, Jesus was looking at him with eyes of desire. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus was looking at him with eyes of desire. And he, he, the first thing that he sees, metaphorically when he opens his eyes, is the eyes of Jesus looking at him with all of that desire and all of that love and all of that mercy and all of that compassion. And so he says, I want to go with you. I'm going where you're going. That's discipleship. It's kind of a churchy word, right? Discipleship is about, uh, really it's about becoming. It's becoming like someone. Anybody who's becoming like someone else is on a journey of discipleship. Like there is this book, uh, the Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs. Came out several years ago. I don't know if any of you read it, but it's all about well, it's all about Steve Jobs, uh, and it became this massive hit in the tech industry. And what you started to see afterwards is that all of these tech entrepreneurs started to be disciples of Steve Jobs, like Elizabeth Holmes, the woman who started Theranos and recently got put in jail for it. But that's a different story. Okay, she's this 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 tech entrepreneur. She started wearing black turtlenecks and. Um, acting really bossy and like she knew what everybody needed and wanted because she was trying to become like Steve Jobs. She was, she was being discipled by him and by this book about him. Yeah, that discipleship is, ab- is about becoming like someone. That when we are following Jesus, we are, we are becoming like him. But we're becoming like him. It's so easy to think about discipleship or our growth or our maturity as Christians as this purely intellectual exercise. If I could just get a little bit more information in my head, if I could just read a few more books that would teach me the right things to believe about Jesus, then I would mature as a Christian. That's not true. Now, knowing true things about God, that is important because it helps you know and love uh, what is true and good and beautiful because you see what's true and beautiful good and beautiful about God. So it's important, but it is not sufficient. That is not maturity. Maturity is not knowing facts about God. Maturity is not even behavior management. It is not ultimately about editing the way that you're living. No, maturity is about having our desires disciplined by, by Jesus. That what's true about you when you come to Christ is the scriptures would tell us you are given now, you're given a new heart. 
that's true about you. That what you most desire in your life is the God who is good and true and beautiful. That you are no longer in rebellion to him. You have received mercy, and that mercy has so captivated you. What God has done is he's given you a new heart, and that what you most desire is to follow after that God, to be made like him, to participate with him. That's true about you. And the rest of your journey of discipleship is you disciplining, working with the Holy Spirit to discipline that desire. See, we often think about discipline and desire as contradictory things. That's not true at all. Anybody who is great at what they do knows that that is not true. That what discipline does is it draws out our potential and stewards it into, into all that it could be. That's why, as disciplined as I can at times be, no amount of discipline could ever make me a great NBA player. The potential is not there, right? I could spend all my time practicing. It's never going to happen. That potential is not in me. That the, the discipline that we apply to our lives and to our desire, it, it's got something to work with. It's this new heart. And discipline is taking those desires and understanding how do we live in light of what is most true about us. So how do we do that? So many ways. One of the ways we do it uh, is by what we do here. When we're here together, one of the things that we are doing is we're disciplining our desire. We're coming to be reminded of the Jesus who we have imprinted on. That when our spiritual eyes were awakened, that what we saw is the Jesus who desires and delights in us. And this is a place once a week where we're, we're reminded that that's true. Where we sing about it being true. Right? Prepping today by listening to the U2 song maybe think about being at a concert. Right? If you just like imagine being at a U2 concert and having them play, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, and everyone's singing along. Getting lost in that the surrender to this thing that is greater than me. Um, that's what we're doing when we're here. It may not always feel like a U2 concert, you know. But we're, we're saying what's true. We're hearing other people sing what's true. We're being reminded of it. We're participating in it. We're disciplining our desire to remember what it is that we most truly want. It's true as we live in obedience. What we often say as Christians is, well, you know, I know what I should do, the Christian thing, right? Then there's what I want to do. And we put those things at odds with each other. And so our obedience becomes this grudging, okay, I'll do the thing Jesus is asking me to do. Does anybody else ever experience that? Okay. Somebody else is with me this morning, right? That's so often the way that we can approach obedience. And what this scripture is telling us is, is, is what Bartimaeus does is what's most true about our hearts. That Do you know that what you most desire, if you were in Christ, what you most desire is to be obedient, to be made like him? That's true about you. So this is not this false dichotomy between uh, this thing that I want and, and like doing the Christian thing. No, the promise of the scriptures is that as you walk in obedience, as you are following Jesus, what's true is that you come more alive to those desires and find that being obedient is what you truly want. 
that's the journey of discipleship, is us learning to discipline our desire and direct it in the way that God would call us to. And in all of that, that we would say, like you too, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The last, uh, the last bit of that song, I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one, but yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds, you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, oh my shame, you know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But what they're, what they're pointing out to us is that our journey of discipleship doesn't dim our desire, it actually stokes the fire of it. That as we grow and age and mature in Christ, that what becomes more and more true about us is that our desires grow. And the pain of those unmet desires can be very real, even more real than when we came to know Christ initially. Yes! Because the place that we are, the place that we are going, the place that we are destined for, is the place where we will be face-to-face -face with our Jesus. And on that day, we will say, I've found what I'm looking for. That I've been found in the one who is the one who came looking for me. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you delight in us, Lord, that you desire us. We pray that you would discipline our desires, Jesus, and that you would teach us uh, to delight in you as you delight in us. That we would desire you, God, that you would fan it into flame, even as we worship this morning, knowing that you are first the one who has desired us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.